everyone, and welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about surviving and living and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which it seems people have always lived. What do our sacred texts have to teach us as white people, in particular, about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? The theme song that you heard is a recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement, We Are Building Up a New World. This recording is a multiracial movement practice in Denver, Colorado, in December of 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Jean Jeffress. I'm back with you during this time of COVID still happening and inequitable vaccine rollouts and all of that stuff, uh, all of the various things that are going on right now. I am an associate pastor in a local United Church of Christ in Northern California and that church is in the South Bay, Silicon Valley. I live in the city of Oakland, uh, which is in the East Bay, all in Northern California, and both the South Bay and the East Bay exist on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge Faith, and is particularly designed for white Christians. The idea white people, but white Christians. The idea is that us white folks will talk with other white folks about race and about white supremacy. We believe white people, like many of y'all listening now and like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian traditions. We'd love to hear from you, especially from listeners of color and listeners of all faith traditions. Let us know how you think we're doing. The word is resistance. For this episode, I will start again, I did this once before, with an excerpt from a book entitled Our Racist Presidents from Washington to Nixon by Mel Steinfeld And it was written in 1972, so some of the language is a little archaic. To read a poor quality PDF of this text that I'm reading, you can click in the transcript for a link to find it. Chapter 26 in Our Racist Presidents. McKinley justifies atrocities against, and here's the archaic word, against Orientals. It's actually... He's waging war on, in the Philippines. So normally we would not say Orientals. So sorry for that. Seventy years ago, the United States fought a protracted and bloody war of counterinsurgency in the Philippines. Circumstantial evidence suggests the possibility that Americans initiated the fighting in 1899, only two days before the Senate was to ratify the treaty with Spain in order to stampede recalcitrant legislators who were balking over the controversial provisions to annex the Philippines. 
Once the fighting erupted outside Manila, Major General Elwell S. Otis assured the American public that the Filipino nationalist forces of Emilio Aguinaldo would be wiped out within a matter of weeks. A sanguine prediction he continually reiterated with each demand for more troops. Newspapers openly accused Otis of inflating enemy counts while concealing American losses. The general returned a hero to Washington in 1900, and all doubts were washed away in a sea of toasts and patriotic testimony. Once home, Otis exchanged his sword for a pen with which to attack the peace movement for encouraging the Filipinos to continue fighting long after they were obviously defeated. The highly respected Republican senator from Massachusetts, George F. Hoar, became the leading dove and was in the awkward position of challenging the legality of a war sponsored by his own party. Other distinguished Americans joined in. The university campuses of Ann Arbor to Cambridge hosted peace rallies at which this inhumane war of extermination was denounced by professors who evoked public cries of treason for describing the stars and stripes as an emblem of tyranny and butchery in the Philippines. In spite of the Army's heavy-handed attempts at censorship, correspondents were able to corroborate suppressed rumors of American atrocities in the Philippines, civilians were being slaughtered, herded into concentration camps, tortured to extract information and confessions, and shot as hostages. As frustration mounted in our generals, they began to repeat the tragic errors of their Spanish predecessors. When denial was no longer viable, the atrocities were attributed to our native allies, the Maccabees, a despised group who once served Spain. Euphemisms were invented to mitigate the practices. Relocation camps of instruction and sanitation were designed to protect the natives from Aguinaldo's enslavement. Hence, the water war, a favorite means of torture that often proved fatal, was never used, sometimes resorted to by our native allies, or was described as merely an unpleasant experience for the victim. But first prize must go to President McKinley, who described the process of subjugating the Filipinos as benign assimilation. As the credibility gap widened, unorthodox tactics were justified on the grounds that the insurrectos were not revolutionaries, but bandits who wore no distinguishing uniforms and blended into the, the peasantry after ambushing and booby-trapping our troops. For our generals, who cut their military teeth on Indian wars, the ultimate justification was racism. As biologically inferior and treacherous savages, the Filipinos did not rate con conventional modes of warfare. Major General Adna R. Chafee cautioned reporters not to wax sentimental over the shooting of a few goo-goos, as our troops called the natives. A government attempt to demonstrate the, that that flagrant violations did not go unpunished, backfired when it was learned that the murder of a, Fili a Filipino cost one officer a modest fine and the loss of 35 places on the promotion list. The sensational atrocity trial of a Marine Major Hunt that hurt the administration more when the defense contended that he was simply following Brigadier General Jacob H. Smith's orders to take no prisoners, shoot all males over the age of 10, 
and make the island Samar a howling wilderness in retaliation for the bloody ambush of an American company. Smith's subsequent court-martial led to a reprimand and early retirement for him and for the Army Chief of Staff. By 1902, Americans had had their fill of atrocities and were eager to sweep the dirt under the rug. The New York Times thanked Harpers for sanely pointing out that the use of torture and the shooting of hostages were humane practices in that they shortened the war and saved lives. Teddy Roosevelt still insisted that Americans were fighting the Filipinos, quote, for the triumph of civilization over the forces which stand for the black chaos and savagery and, and barbarism, end quote. Teddy Roosevelt, good guy. The heavy cost of war in lives, emotional and political divisiveness, and a tarnished national honor should have sobered America sufficiently to question permanently the efficacy of military intervention to frustrate nationalistic aspirations. President McKinley, folks. With the heightened awareness of anti-Asian attacks that we're witnessing right now, this reading gets into some of the colonial and racist origins of anti-Asian sentiment in our nation. Many bloody and dirty wars have been waged in the, in the U.S. since 1900, and many of those in Asian countries on Asian bodies. Two atomic bombs dropped on Japan, wars in Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Hmong. The American empire has much to atone for. Well, it's Palm Sunday again, the ground covered with people's cloaks, waving leafy branches while Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Hosanna in the highest. I love this story. Today's Palm Sunday passage is from Mark 11, 1 through 11. And it says, When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been written. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door, outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed in the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Last Palm Sunday, we were about 19 days into the shelter-in-place order. 
I preached a sermon from an armchair in my living room into the blue Zoom screen. Back then it was weird. Now, of course, it's what we do. My sermon was called Pandemic Palm Sunday. I re-dramatized the stories of Jesus' entrance into the city, the protests, the mock military, nonviolent direct action, and the actual military parade in the context of the pandemic. That out of an abundance of caution, remember that, abundance of caution? Both events, the protest and the parade, were canceled. But someone could watch the protest via Zoom at romanweb.zoom.rm slash Jesus slash 30CE password Jesus is King, lowercase all one word. And of course, that Zoom meeting got bombed. That was in the sermon. And the point of that sermon was to say that just because the imperial parade was canceled, that just because life as we had known it up until then had changed overnight, and so many places like businesses and schools and churches were closed and so many of us were sent home, that did not mean that empire wasn't still on parade. At that point, we were starting to see how people who we had come to call essential workers were being sacrificed on the cross of capitalism. Of course, this has been happening since time immemorial, but suddenly it was news. At that time, hospitals could not get enough protective gear. They could not get the protective gear they needed, not enough of it. And the former administration was hoarding protective gear, saying the national stockpile was not for the states. At that time, we were just starting to see the reality of full ICUs and ventilator shortages and bodies piling up. At that time, the parade was about incompetence and apathy and what appeared to be intentional cruelty. And then the seasons passed on to November, election season, and on November 4th, 2020, the parade was about Stop the Steal, and that parade culminated on January 6th white supremacy on parade, neo-fascism on parade, not to mention QAnon on parade. What does a white supremacist country do when white supremacists try to overthrow the democracy that was created in the name of white supremacy? My fear is that it won't be enough. This year, it's still Pandemic Palm Sunday. It looks a little bit different. This year, the protest at the protest will be practicing social distancing, or maybe it will be a car caravan. The Imperial Parade will be on television, streaming on Amazon Prime. This year, Palm Sunday exists in the shadow of over 500,000 dead from COVID, high unemployment rates, inequitable vaccination rollout, 30 million people infected, and over a thousand still dying every day. 30 million just in the US. I think that's right. I'm gonna look that up. Anyway, all that and there's still the matter of what happened on January 6th. This attempt to interrupt the certification of the 2020 electoral votes, an election won by Biden because of black political organizing has led 
to over 200 bills in 43 states to severely roll back voting rights. When a violent insurrection does not work, the next best thing is to seek power through legitimate legal means. It takes longer, but it's harder to undo. The next white nationalist who gets in the White House will likely be a smooth talker who will make flouting the laws of the land look charming. 2020 was a trial run. The power of the state is only legitimate when people obey. And we all know that nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience can affect change, change minds, and lead to policy change. But it takes time. We also know that when we protest against the basic interests of the state, like Black, like Black Lives Matter protests, or protesting for housing rights, or, or to protect indigenous land, or protesting for a living wage, those protest efforts are often criminalized and met with police violence. They, are, they oppose the basic interests of the state. But when a protest wraps itself up in an American flag and is carried out by people who call themselves patriots, it seems like the nation is scratching its head and trying to figure out what that was even about. Even with the over 200 arrests made in the wake of January 6th, I'm not sure the nation overall sees what happened as a real threat. I think that that thought gets stuck in a breath of denial. I think that thought pokes the place in our brains where white fragility lives. I think that the color of skin of the protesters for white America determines whether or not a protest is dangerous, regardless of the death of a police officer, regardless of extensive property damage, regardless of people literally saying they wanted to kill elected officials. I know this is not a news flash for anybody listening, but this is how white supremacy distorts, deplatforms, and delegitimizes reality. It makes, it makes white supremacy look harmless. It is not. Democracy didn't prevail, as Biden said in his inaugural speech. Democracy, such as it is, hangs precariously in the balance between the tenuous legitimacy of the state and the accelerating violence of white supremacy. And here's the rub. The state was made legitimate through the weaponization of white supremacy. That's reality. That's what we need to be talking about. Progressive white people and progressive white Christians, like the ones in my particular context, middle and upper middle class progressive white Christians from an open and affirming congregation, from a self-identified inclusive congregation in a blue state, like so many congregations in my denomination. These folks, of which I am one, we bristle at the term white supremacy. It's a term for the Klan, or for other hate groups, or for white nationalists, or for people from other places. My work right now is to normalize the use of the term white supremacy, to help myself and others to understand it, not as a behavior, but as a system that privileges white bodies over non-white bodies. That white supremacy shows up institutionally at every level. That white supremacy is the culture. If you're listening to this podcast, this is probably old news to you. But if you're new to the work, and you're working with progressive white Christians or any white people who will show up for this work, 
dive right into the discomfort and normalize using the term white supremacy. When I started this work with church groups, I used the softer, the softer term white privilege, but white privilege is just white supremacy in a potentially more digestible form. And then start recognizing and addressing white supremacy in all of its disguises, law and order, public safety, balanced budget, neighborhood revitalization. There are a number of outfits white supremacy wears to make it look reasonable, helpful, and understandable. The reality is white supremacy reasons with mass shootings and voter suppression. Let's normalize talking about the reality of white supremacy. It's violent, it's hateful, and it's the basis of American culture. It's the parade. The protest is us doing this work. My call to action this week is from the Catalyst Project. Please join in donating the support to support the families of those killed in the Atlanta shooting. There is a link in the transcript. Also from the Catalyst Project, join in supporting the calls for a response by signing onto three letters that center Asian American women and elders, reject increased police presence in Asian communities, and invests in long-term solutions that address the root causes of the violence, and center the voices of Asian massage parlor workers calling for support for their labor rights and the, dis the decriminalization of sex work. The link is in the transcript. Another call to action is to download the Surge Community Safety for All Congregational Action Toolkit. You can download that in the transcript on the blue word here. There will be a bit more about that also in the resource section of the transcript. Thank you so much for joining me from wherever you are in this world today. And let us know how your actions go. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Tune in for a Good Friday Resistance Word from uh, Reverend Ann Dunlap. You can find out more about Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, that is, at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. I guess we're on... Uh, Oh, I can't remember. I heard it on another podcast. Spotify? I can't remember. Anyway, search on the word is resistance on SoundCloud. You'll definitely find us. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, as always, a huge thank to our, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. You are so patient and wonderful. Blessings to all of you in all, of the, in all that you do. Love and liberation to you all. And until next time, I am Jean Jeffress. <laughs>